0: That should be our story. Amen? Amen. All right. Speaking of our story, let's continue as God wants to teach us today. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, I pray that you will turn to chapter 4. We're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. If you're using that pew Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, pick it up at verse 13, is on page 1,358. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll cover verses 13 to 18 which is the remainder of the chapter. As I was reading the scripture, I was reminded, I did my first funeral over 11 years ago. I was a fill-in for a fill-in preacher. So I drove to Woodbury that day, not knowing who I was going to meet. Honestly, I was a little nervous to meet the family and then do The funeral a little bit time after the visitation. My plan was to meet with certain family members, beginning with his wife and his children, to get information to help me prepare and to deliver what I hoped to be was a good funeral. I sat with his wife. I remember going over in this little funeral home in Woodbury, and I'd never been to Woodbury before either. You know, it's easy to miss Woodbury if you're not looking. But I remember calling her over, and we sat down to the side, and I asked her, turned out naively, I asked her if her husband was a Christian. She said this to me. She said, I have no idea. And I was in disbelief. I spoke to other family members, and they were all about as far away from heaven as you could possibly get. Well, this first-time funeral preacher not knowing the family, not knowing the place, not knowing anything, and now not believing that they knew Jesus, I went into panic mode internally because I was understanding that this man likely just entered into his eternity apart from Christ. Christ. And I didn't know a lot of things, but I knew a few things very clearly. And I knew one thing that I could not do in that funeral, and that was provide hope to the family about where their loved one now was. Because if they don't know Jesus, if they're not in heaven, I can't make believe that they are because then everybody who hears this looks around and says, well, I'm as good as he was. I guess I've got heaven too. And you just can't do that. And that was a very hard lesson and a very hard uh, funeral. Secondly, I knew that what I couldn't do was provide hope as to where he was. But what I knew, one thing I had to do, and that was to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the only opportunity any of them had to have an eternity with Jesus was to come to know Jesus as their savior. So I remember in this funeral home in Woodbury with this family I didn't know, not very many people there. I shared the truth and they looked at the walls and the ceiling. I challenged them and they just stared. I offered to speak to them afterward or gave them ways to reach and get a hold of me in the days ahead. No one even spoke. I've done 105 funerals since that day. You're going, Jeff, you count them? Yes. Because I write every one of them and I have the files and I took the time to go back and I counted them. While each one has been different, I can tell you that the ones where there was hope because of Jesus and the gospel, those funerals, no matter how hard they were, were easier. And I've done a number of them where I knew for certain that the one that the funeral was for was not in heaven, and those are much harder. The hope of Jesus is the key to the one who has passed and is an equally more important key to those that are left behind. So I'd like us to stand this morning and read from the book of First Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 13 through 18. First Thessalonians chapter 4, picking up in verse 13, says this. This is Paul writing. He says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Thank you, you may be seated. Keep your scripture open. That scripture that we just read is um, my favorite scripture as it relates to doing funerals. I have alluded to that passage in 65% of the funerals I've officiated. And you're going, Jeff, you know that? Yeah, it's a problem. Once you're a numbers guy, you just can't stop being a numbers guy. Plus, I told you I wrote them all, and I have them all in my file, and I went and did my homework. 65% of the time, I allude to this. But this week, I was driven to look at this scripture in a different way. You see, if we're not careful, we can begin to look at this scripture as the funeral scripture. And only the funeral scripture, and therefore, if we're not at a funeral, if somebody's not died, then that funeral, then that scripture doesn't mean as much to me. And I really prayed, because it's actually been two weeks. I had this one prepared before I went out, uh, before Angela and I took a few days out and the wedding last weekend. And I prayed that the Lord would show me how to not use it as funeral scripture, but to use it as living scripture. What am I supposed to do with this scripture now? Because we're here. You know, the one thing about everybody that we've done a funeral for prior to this is they're not here today. This scripture was never meant to be for the ones who have died. This scripture has always been meant to be for the ones who remain. So Paul starts in verse 13. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant. Now, I don't know about you, but I was raised understanding the word ignorant to be an ugly word, but it's really not an ugly word. Paul is not using the word ignorant in the New King James in a punitive way or in a demeaning way. So I looked it up. The word ignorant simply means to not know. Ignorant means lacking knowledge, being uninformed. See, we have to remember who Paul's talking to. Paul had sent Timothy to Thessalonica, we've talked about a few weeks ago, to establish their faith and to encourage their faith. You can find that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2. They were new to Jesus. They were new to the truth. They were new to the Word of God. They were new to their faith. They had much to learn, many things they did not know. As I've mentioned, I did a wedding last weekend, and I mentioned to the bride and the groom as part of the wedding ceremony that they should not think that they know each other yet. But they're going, but we've we've known each other for nearly seven years. And they're 26 years old. And you're going, we know each other. Well, we sat through counseling together and we talked and all these things. And I told them, I said, don't think that you know each other yet because what I have found in my marriage and what I want to encourage you to look for in your marriage is that intimate knowledge is not something that we can get to. It is a lifetime goal. Now, whether you've been married 10 days, 10 weeks, 10 months, 10 years, or a few more than that, I want you to know that God desires for you to get to know your spouse more and more, and more. That's one of the beauties of marriage. But I told you I was using this example, and the same is true for us in our faith. Step away from the marriage example. In your faith life, in your relationship with Jesus, there are many things that they did not know. There are things that we still do not know. I think it's one of the coolest things, to be as old as I am, to have read the Bible as much as I have, and then I read something, and the Spirit of God will just allow me to see something that I've never seen before. Don't ever think when you open up God's Word that you know it already. The Spirit of God has a lot to show you and teach you and raise you up in doing that. You're in a relationship with Jesus Christ when you're saved. And therefore, you're going to be growing in your understanding of him and maturing in the days ahead. It's a big Bible word called sanctification, becoming less of who you were and more of who Jesus is. And so I pray that in this scripture and in any time you read God's word, that you will ask the Holy Spirit to teach you something in scripture that you do not currently know to help you learn something about God that you were ignorant in before. And I believe that the way we open up our heart as we walk into Scripture has a great deal to how we allow the Spirit of God to inform us and teach us through Scripture. So I just wanted to encourage you in that way. Because in John chapter 16, Jesus said these words in verses 12 and 13. He said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Did you notice that? Jesus is saying, I spent all my time pouring into you, but there are so many things that you need to hear and learn and know. And he said, it's going to come, and the Spirit of God is going to be the one to help you understand what it is. And the Spirit of God, along with the Word of God, helps you understand who God is in a more complete and thorough way. God desires to expand our knowledge of Scripture, and therefore of Him, every single day. Go back to verse 13. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. Paul is seeking to teach those who have already entered into a relationship with Jesus as Savior. And he says, I want to tell you in verse 13, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Paul is seeking to address a particular concern right now. He just said, I No, you need to know something that you don't currently know about those that are asleep, which is those that have died and passed on before. You see, those young in their faith, those young in the church, historically speaking, we're uncertain about what happens to those in faith when they pass away, to those of the church who died. Paul had referenced many times, even just in 1 Thessalonians, the expectancy of Jesus' return. Paul had taught them about the end times. In 1 Thessalonians 1, chapter 10, he said, wait for the Son. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, at his Jesus' coming. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, at the coming of Jesus. Paul, he's teaching them in their faith, he's challenging them, encouraging them, educating them about God and their faith. And all along, he's pointing them to a day that Jesus will come back. Church, can I tell you, in case you might be ignorant of this, Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. And so many times, we do not live as if we understand that. Scripture teaches that we live like one who's been given a warning, but we don't act like we're heeding it, and so we live a certain way. You know, if we knew Jesus was coming back, if we really believed that Jesus was coming back, We'd act a certain way. We'd live a certain way. So can I tell you, as Paul has told them, one, two, three, tells them two more times in the scripture we read today, Jesus is coming back. And it should change that knowledge, that belief that we have, should change how we live and what we do. Many in the church, historians and scholars have agreed, were likely concerned as to what happened to believers who died before Christ's return. You see, Paul's teaching these new believers about the coming of Christ, the coming of Christ, the coming of Christ, the coming of Christ. And if you go and look in the scripture as Paul is reading it, he includes himself, we who are alive at his coming. Paul sees this return of Jesus as a very immediate opportunity. And you're going, well, see, we've gotten lulled to sleep just a little bit. Paul was thinking just a number of years after Jesus returned, it could be any minute. And then we're sitting here 2000 years later going, man, it's hard to be excited about something that could happen any minute when every minute passes by for 2000 years it hasn't happened. Can I remind you again that Jesus is coming back? And we need to live and act in such a way that we expect his return, that we look for his return. Any time Jesus could come back. He may I may not even get through this message. And it's possible that Christ could return and not get through this next sentence. So church, we need to make sure that the life that we live is one of expectancy. Paul was. That's why Paul lived the way he lived, because he believed that any minute Jesus could come back, and he wanted to be found faithful, and he wanted as many people as could to have come to know Jesus as their Savior. You remember, he sent Timothy, and he's reviewed that. He'll about that already. So Timothy's come back to Paul, shared with him the visit. Paul is now writing this letter to them. So it must have been something that they voiced to Timothy, their concerns about what happens to those who aren't here when Jesus comes back. Do you know that when we have concerns and we don't voice them, and we don't resolve them, and we don't deal with them, they can cause us problems. Those concerns, I was uh, speaking with a young man. I'm going to divert for just a second. I told you we were on vacation this week. and uh, Angel and I were taking a walk in uh, downtown Blue Ridge and saw this sign, axe throwing. I'm going... Where's that at? I've never thrown an axe before. I was raised thinking throwing axes was rude. So we walked into this place, and for $25 plus tax, you could throw an axe for an hour. There was nobody in the room. I said, Sign me up. Angela said, I'm not throwing an axe. Do you know if you're the only person throwing an axe, it's about like going bowling and you're the only person throwing a ball? You get tired quick. So I learned how to throw an axe, and I left-handed because I'm a lefty. And then I throw it right-handed, and I'm actually a little bit better throwing an axe right-handed than left. Who'd have thunk it, right? You're going, Jeff, what's this have to do with anything? I get tired of being the only guy throwing an axe. There's one more man in the building. He works there. I walk over to him. I said, do you ever get time to throw one? He said, yeah. I said, you want to throw it now? He said, yeah. He was 18 years old. He just knew he was going to clean the floor with me. A guy he just taught to throw an axe. A guy who works in an axe-throwing place thought we were going to be able to get this done. It's an amazing thing. We're throwing axes, and Jesus comes up. Church, when you live a life of expectancy that Jesus is coming, Jesus can come up anytime. And this young 18 year old man, he just confessed to me, he said, God and I aren't close. I've had stuff happen in my life. I've had this, I've had this, I've had this, I've had this. And he was struggling. So, in between throwing axes, I was trying to help him solve some of those struggles. You go, Jeff, why are you bringing this up? Because when you have concerns that you don't address, they will separate you from God. And if you have a question today, if you have a doubt today, if you have a concern today that addresses this, I hope that we're going to answer it in the next few minutes. But if it addresses something else, you need to talk. You need to bring it up. So God can work that through your life so that you aren't ignorant, so that you are informed, so that you can deal with things correctly and, and move forward. And so Paul is addressing this issue. To, oh, I just have to tell you, though, back to the axed on for just a second. For those of you who think that I'm ultra-competitive, you're right. And I beat him left-handed, and then I beat him right-handed. And then thankfully for him, somebody walked in. (laughs) Because there was no way he was going to be able to live down letting this old man beat him on his first axe-throwing day. Now, that's just to prove you all wrong. I'm not competitive. I'm just good enough (laughs) in that moment, and that's it. So Paul is trying to educate them. And it's interesting. Paul is teaching them about end times, which is a biblical word called eschatology, talking about end times. But we must be careful. Paul is not mentioning eschatology or end times in order to solely teach them about what those end times are going to look like. I believe, based on what Paul is teaching them that he is trying to be much more practical in his teaching, much more pastoral in his teaching, trying to teach them what to do with it, to educate them that if Jesus is returning, there is an end time. How should we think? How should we feel? How should we live? How should we act? I tend to hold this general position myself, too, that end times, eschatology, revelation, all are vitally important ways that we can come to know God and understand Him and grow in Him. But we must allow them to inform, must allow it, end time studying, to inform how we live in light of their future completion. If we're just studying it to understand end times, but it does nothing else for our life, Spiritually speaking, I think we've missed out what God has for us. When we study in times, we must be saying, because of what we know is coming, how am I going to allow the Lord to live in me and through me today so that other people don't have to feel and go through what I've read is coming? Paul says, i got to help you guys understand what's going on. Verse 13. You're going, Jeff, that's a long verse. We're still in it. Yes. Lest... What he means there is, so you don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Paul tells us right there, so that you don't sorrow as those who have no hope. He's telling us right there that there are two kinds of sorrow. There is the sorrow without hope. And then there is the sorrow with hope. He is telling them, the brethren, the believers, that because of the hope that they have, that they should be looking at death differently. That they should see it through the eyes of the hope that they have, not the hopelessness that they have. But nowhere does Paul ever say, Don't be sorry, don't be sad. He just says that make sure that your sorrow, your sadness for the loss, and I've lost people close to me, and I've sat with you. If you've lost people close to you, and I'll do a funeral Tuesday. For a friend of mine. So I've been on all sides of this. But because we have hope in Jesus, we must allow God to teach us how to see loss through hope. Now, it's an interesting thing that we get into. Paul uh, is trying to help them. He says, I want you to know Verse 13, so that you have hope. Verse 18, he says, I want you to know so that you can be comforted. I love it when somebody says, I'm telling you these things, and I just told you these things so that you would be comforted. Paul says, I'm telling you this for a specific purpose. Hope and comforted." but I believe there's another benefit that can also come from knowing correctly, as he answers this for them, wrong doctrine. Leads to wrong beliefs. We get that, right? And wrong beliefs will lead to wrong living. Knowing leads to right doctrine, which should lead us to right believing, which should lead us to right living. Jesus said just as much in John chapter 8, verse 32, he says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The truth has a purpose. It is to set us free. Paul is seeking to establish their faith and to encourage their faith with the hope that they have, with the comfort that he intends, so it helps them to live their lives correctly before God. Paul wants them to know and wants them to have hope. So what does he tell them? Look at verse 14. He says, for if we believe. Now, I could go two different ways on here. You go, for if we believe. Some places look at this and go, because we believe or since we believe. And it goes on to say here in verse 14, for if, call it since for just a second. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's the gospel. Jesus died and rose again. That's the gospel. And Paul says, since you believe this, brethren. But we also have to recognize that God's word can speak to us in different ways. And there could be somebody in this room right now that it needs to be read like this. For if you believe this, meaning it's a condition upon receiving the hope and the comfort and the knowledge, is you have to believe that Jesus died and rose again. I just want to be very clear. If you do not come to a point in your life when you yield your life, call out to Christ to enter into your life, if you don't know him to be the son of God who died for you, shed his blood on the cross, was buried, was resurrected on the third day and ascended to be with the father, if you don't believe that, you're not saved. And the church gets quiet because a statement like that, that's an only statement. And so if here today you're dependent upon any other thing than the gospel to save you, You are holding on to the wrong thing, and Paul wants them to know that, and I want you to know that because this world is clinging to too many wrong things. The church doesn't need to be one of the people clinging to that wrong thing. Romans 10, 9, and 10, just to be clear, says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. He says, I declare to you the gospel by which you are saved. For I delivered to you, first of all, that I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scripture. That's the gospel. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this because what you believe about this defines every other thing that you believe in your life. And he's using this example of what happens to those in faith who die. And you're going, Jeff, hurry up and get there. I want to know the answer. But Paul says, it depends on what you believe. If you were to look at First Peter, we're not going there, but I just want to give you these scriptures for note takers. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, Jesus' death secured our atonement. Yeah. And if you were to read in Romans chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, Jesus' resurrection secured our justification. Yeah. And I'll tell you this: no one will enter into the presence of the Lord without atonement. From Jesus' death and justification because of the resurrection. If you are saved, this is what you believe. If you believe this, you are saved. If you have trouble with that, we need to chat. And Paul goes on and says, and because of that faith, look at verse 14. When Jesus returns, he, that's Jesus, will bring all that have slept, that's the word for dying, in that faith. And we need to make sure we understand. That faith, the gospel, people that have died in that faith, Jesus is the Son of God who came and lived and bled and died and was resurrected. That faith, those people, Jesus is going to bring with him. Through all the ages. We know this by the word of the Lord. See, Jesus taught the same thing. Paul's not making up doctrine and teaching here, he's really just sharing it from what he's received through the Spirit and from Jesus. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus taught this exact thing. Go read it. Matthew chapter 24. We do not have to, as believers in Jesus, have to wonder about death or what happens afterwards we have a word from God. Look at verse 15. He says, we know this by the word of the Lord, Paul is saying. Verse 16, that the Lord himself will descend. Now, church, this is that glorious day. We keep talking about Jesus is going to return. This is that glorious day. Jesus is coming back, and it could be at any time. I've already drawn your attention to the Paul included himself, but it's in verse 15, we who are alive. In verse 17, we who are alive. Paul is teaching about the immediacy of Jesus' return. It is going to happen, and we should live in a certain way with that expectation never being far from our hearts. And when it occurs, the following details are given to us about that moment. Look at verse 16. It says, Jesus will return from heaven. He's not going to send anybody else. He's going to come himself. And verse 16 tells us it's going to be a noisy event. Look at what it says there. Jesus will shout. The voice of an archangel will sound and the trumpet of God. Now, I can't tell you I'm smart enough to understand if that's just Paul defining a loud event in three different ways or if there's going to be three different sounds that are going to occur. I just know that if you're a child of God, you're not going to miss it. Okay? You won't miss it. You know, this is the only, this is the second and only place in Scripture where Jesus shouts. And you're going, Jeff, what's the other one? If you go to John chapter 11, Jesus is coming to see Mary and Martha, whose brother Lazarus had died. And he gets to the point, and he said, I'm glad I'm here, because I'm getting ready to show you what God's going to do. And Jesus shouted in John chapter 11, Lazarus, come forth! You know, Jesus saves all of his shouting for gathering his people. That's what I see. Church, you don't have to worry about, are you going to miss it? Paul says, listen, brethren, you're not going to miss it. It's going to be a noisy event. Verse 16 goes on and says that the dead in Christ will rise first. You know, upon death, the spirit of the believer goes to be with the Lord in heaven. That's an immediate activity. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 is a voice, is a passage of hope for God's people. It says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you know Jesus or if you have a loved one who knows Jesus and the Lord chooses to take them home before he returns, They're with him. But note, the body's left behind. In this moment, in this glorious return, those who have died will both come with Jesus, the Spirit, and then they will experience their bodily resurrection. Their bodies will come up, and they will join together. And note, this is going to happen first. Those of us that are here, Now, it's all going to happen fast. Scripture talks about this is like in the twinkling of an eye. So I don't know how loud it's going to be, but it'll only be for a minute. I don't know how fast it's going to be, but it's not going to last long. And all this is going to happen, but there is an ordering to events. Jesus comes and shouts first. Those come with him spiritually. Their bodies are resurrected and join them in the air. We get to see this, and then we get to join them in the air. That's pretty cool says, then we who are alive will be caught up. The Latin word for caught up is rapturo. The Greek word is harpazo. It means forcefully, immediately, violently, quickly. As 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, in the twinkling of an eye, it's going to come down and Jesus is going to say, these are mine. And he's going to get them. You won't be left behind. What Paul is saying is, listen, it's not about you listening And catching the bus to heaven. But if you are a listener, it's going to be loud. But I'm coming for you. You're not looking for me. And I'm going to bring everybody I've got with me. And I'm going to catch up everybody else. And he's not going to miss any. Can I remind you of scripture where nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the presence of God. Child of God. You're not going to miss it. It's not yours to miss. It's Jesus' event, and you're his, and he will not miss you. Verse 17, caught up together with them, with the other believers who had died, and with Jesus in the air. Now, there's a real clarification we need to make right here. This is the rapture not the second coming. You see, Scripture teaches that the rapture will happen in the air. The second coming, Jesus will touch his foot down on the ground. So that tells you where we are in the end event kind of things. And verse 17 says, and we will always be with the Lord. So, Jesus is coming back. We need to live with urgency. So, the dead in faith will come with him. Now, there's a good and a bad thing right here. We just have to figure out how we feel about this. When your loved one who knew Jesus passed and is now with Jesus and comes back with Jesus in the air, and then you get called up in the air, and we have this family reunion of Jesus' people together, your loved one, or you. Let's just use you. You're not going to run no matter how you feel right this second. You're not gonna run and look for your loved one. You're gonna wanna see Jesus. Now, the fact that you get to see your loved one, that's a bonus. Now, I don't know all the activities I don't know what it all looks like. But what I'm learning about grief for just a second, and I, don't, I haven't spent a lot of time on this, but it's been on my heart a lot. When we lose someone, yes, it hurts. But Scripture teaches in so many places that we're not home, that this is not our home, that we are here for a while, that Jesus is going to come back and get us. And so this is but a vapor right? Like grass, like a flower, just a moment life is. And Paul teaches in other places about how we have this yearning to be clothed with his righteousness, to be in his presence. And this is testing out to me, okay, you go and do some Bible studying on this, but I think part of the reason when we lose somebody who knows Jesus, that it hurts so bad is because they are not with us. But I also think that there's a part of that that hurts because it reminds us that we're not home. And it causes us to be homesick. It causes us to want to be with Jesus. And when people that we love, that we lose, get their reward, it makes us go, but I want my reward. Because we need to recognize the scripture teaches: if you know Jesus, you know you're just passing through this world, and you're looking forward to that day. So I want to encourage you that, in light of these things, Jesus is coming back. You need to live with urgency. The dead in faith will come with Him. That means that they're with Him now. If you've lost someone who knew Jesus, they cannot come back with Him if they're not already with him. Be comforted with that. That we can have hope. That we can be encouraged. We can know. And that that knowing should help us live our lives differently today. Yes, yes, yes. All those are true. Only if you know Jesus as your Savior. Paul started with the most important word, if. Do you know Jesus? Knowing Jesus makes all the difference. Hopefully, it motivates us as brethren, people who know Jesus, to live more expectantly, more purposefully in our lives. I pray that you'll do that. What an opportunity we've been granted. We know it ends well. We ought to be able to live well between now and when it ends. Amen. We have.